Oh, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors. And this morning, what we're doing is we are going to be looking at the very end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in Romans chapter 16. And so if you've got your Bibles um, or your device, uh, pull up Romans chapter 16. We're going to look at the whole chapter. There's 27 verses. And I'll tell you how it breaks out. There are three um, divisions of Romans chapter 16. The first um, division is like verses 1 through 16. And these are Paul's um, greetings to believers that he knows that live in Rome. And he has encountered them during his missionary journeys. And so he's writing to them. And you'll see, um, as you look at it, what Paul has is this great affection, even from a, a far distance away from those believers. And he, and he speaks to them, and he knows them, and it's personal, and there's diversity. And so what you see is this, this affection from a distance. The next thing you see is that Paul's going to give a strong warning, beginning in verse 17 and going to verse 23. He's going to say, hey, listen, uh, we've got to press in. We've got to guard doctrine. Um, what we believe in the church is crucial to our stability and to our unity. And then in the last part of it, verses 25 through 27, what Paul is going to give is this beautiful doxology at the end of Romans. And so we'll look at those three things. I want to pray for us, and then we'll look into the passage. So if you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear your word, that even in the midst of this medium and doing church this way and, and gathering um, together while we're apart. Father, would your spirit um, unite us? Would your spirit bring unity to us? Father, would you cut through the isolation um, that many of us feel? And um, Father, supernaturally, would you um, gather us this morning in fellowship? And so we ask that you would do what only you can do, and we ask it the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Well, I would start off this way, and I would say it this. This is Paul's big idea as he comes to the end of his letter to the Romans. And the big idea is this. It's that the, the Christian life isn't something that you check in and out of. It's something that, you, that, that always defines you. It always governs your life. You're, you're always alert to it. You, it always orients you. My youngest daughter, Catherine... She has um, just finished taking driver's ed, and we came up a couple of weeks ago, and we drove around the South Campus parking lot. She got behind the wheel of my truck, and we drove the parking lot, and it was her first time behind the wheel to, to, to feel the, the, you know, the power of a vehicle and to put your foot on the brake and put your foot on the gas. And um, I was realizing so many things you don't know when you first start to drive. And one of those is that while you may be doing other things while you're driving, you're the primary thing, the major thing that you're doing is that you're driving. You can be listening to music, you can be singing, um, you can be having a conversation, you can be on the phone, and you can be doing lots of other things while you're driving. But while you're driving, the major thing you're doing is you're keeping your eyes on the road, you're checking your mirrors, you're always aware of those things that are around you. The primary thing you do when you drive is that you, you drive. 
even in the midst of everything else that you might be doing. And this is Paul's idea of Christianity. It's not something we check in and out of. It's not something that we do occasionally. It's not something that's compartmentalized to a certain portion of our life. Christianity is something that we're always doing. It's, it's something we're always about. And so um, that is Paul's entire point, that we are believers in Christ. And that means we're, we're, we're Christians. Our, our life has been changed. Our heart has been renewed. And everything about us is now oriented by and governed by who Christ is. And so as he comes to the end of this letter, he is going to take a few moments. And in the first two verses, he's talking about a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe's a servant. The word servant may also mean deacon or deaconess. And she is the one that's carrying the letter for Paul to the Romans. And so this is what it says. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need for you, from you, for she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. And so what Paul's doing is he's commending this woman who's bringing the letter that Paul has written to the Romans, and, he, and he's saying, hey, listen, I want you to welcome her. I want you to welcome her as though you were welcoming me. I want you to meet all the needs that she has. She, um, she loves you. She loves the church. She's cared for me. She's cared for the church. And so this is Phoebe. And then what he's going to do is he's going to go and he's going to list 21 other people that he is going to be greeting there in Rome. I won't read all of those verses for you. You can look at it. He begins with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, which is Priscilla and Aquila. Those two people, they're a married couple. They were in Rome. A church meets at their home. Paul meets them in Corinth when all the Jews got expelled from, uh, from Rome by Claudius, the emperor. And so they had to leave Rome. They're believers. They find themselves in Corinth. They're tent makers. Paul shows up in Corinth. He's making tents and meets them in the synagogue, ends up living with them while he's there, and they become some of the deepest and um, most abiding friends that Paul has um, that we see in all of the scripture. Six times they're mentioned, four of those, curiously enough, Priscilla's mentioned before Aquila. In all of Paul's relationships, you get this sense that Paul might have been a hard guy to get along with. He had a conflict with Peter. He had a conflict with uh, Barnabas. He had a falling out with Mark. There's Demas who he hands over to Satan. And there are several people in Paul's life that he... Um, does ministry with and will have conflict with and will later reconcile with and all of those things. But in all the mentions of Priscilla and Aquila, they are these abiding friends who are always there for Paul, whether they're right there with him or they're halfway across the world. You know, as we think about that and as we think about the 21 other people that Paul mentions here by name and specific things about them and he knows their families and um, th th it's this great um, reminder that at the core of who we are as believers, um, we're a people who are united, who are brought together by God's Spirit and not even the 
distance, um, not even miles or um, or seas or um, all of the things, not, not, not prison, not famine, not hardship. None of those things do they, none of those things threaten the affection that we have for one another. You know, it's interesting. What Paul's demonstrating here is, is how to display and express affection in the midst of distance. And while I haven't had this thought about this passage maybe ever, as we sit in the middle of isolation and quarantine and um, stay-at-home uh, um, uh, decrees from the city and from the state and we're watching what's going on around the world, I'm reminded this morning, one, of how relevant God's Word always is for whatever situation we find ourselves in life, but also I'm reminded that our affection for one another isn't threatened by distance. It's only threatened by neglect. And so we have this great opportunity in an age of technology and cell phones and in ways to communicate with each other that we've got to avail ourselves to and that we would continue to nurture the relationships that we have with one another as believers. And so Paul gives us this great example, and I'll show you in verse 16, he says this, he ends all those greetings, and he says greet uh, 21 times in this, uh, in this section. And what Paul's doing is he, um, you know, it's greet, greet them, greet them. It's a, it's a, it's a word that means to um, embrace um, uh, to, to ex an expression of unity. And he ends it with greet one another with a holy kiss. Five times in the New Testament, you see this one another command of greeting one another with a holy kiss. And um, in the Western church and American church for the last hundred years, um, we're all uncomfortable with the idea that we would greet one another with a holy kiss. And so we usually write it off as, hey, we should handshake or give a side hug. Or, But you know, I'll tell you, in the midst of, of the isolation that we're experiencing, in the midst of all of the things going on in the world, um, in, the, in the midst of um, being separated from one another, there's a reality about Paul's command of this embracing and this intimacy and this greeting of one another that makes so much more sense to me today than it ever has in my life. Um, you could think about this, that, that Paul's um, desire to greet those believers. You can think of this, of this greeting, this embracing, this intimacy that we share with one another. You can think of it this way. It's like this holy defiance, H-O-L-Y, holy defiance of isolation. You know what's interesting is before we were saved, before, um, before the Spirit of God came and and moved on your heart and moved in your life and opened your eyes and um, um, tuned your ears to the song of the gospel, your condition was isolated from God and in conflict and isolation from one another. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that what God does in reconciling us, that what God does by His mercy and in His desire for peace with us is that he sends his son to die on a cross to, to, to pay the penalty of our sins and to bridge the divide 
of the isolation that sin has created in our life. And so we have been saved, not only from death and not only from um, eternal separation. We have been saved by God through the work of his son from isolation. And and this greeting and these warm um, words and, and this affection that Paul pours out through his pen is a holy defiance of the isolation that the world would love to overwhelm us with. I just encourage you this morning, you, as isolated as you may feel or stir-crazy as you may feel, um, the reality is you're not isolated, you're united. The reality is, is that there is affection and relationship and intimacy to be nurtured in whatever way that we have to nurture it. But we don't have to buy in to what everybody's selling about isolation and distance. While we should maintain physical distance, we have a spiritual um, uh, connection, a spiritual affection, a a spiritual um, drawing together that God has done and accomplished by the work of his son. Well, the next bit of this is that Paul is going to give these final instructions. If you look at verse 17, he begins and says this, Why appeal to you brothers or brothers and sisters to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles? So contrary to the um, uh, obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all. You, um, and so I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He goes on and mentions Timothy is with him and Tertius. If you look in verse 22, Tertius, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was the scribe. He was the amanuensis. He was the one Paul's dictating. He had bad eyes and probably bad penmanship. And um, uh, what what, uh, Tertius is doing is he's writing this letter. And here in the middle there uh, of this... um, of these greetings back to Rome, Tertius says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my name in on this deal. And, and so Tertius has one line of, of Scripture there in Romans 16, 22. But I want you to notice this. He, Paul speaks to and warns and um, uh, calls us to protect the doctrine, which simply means those things that we believe as Christians those things we believe about God, those things we believe about the work of His Son Jesus, those things we believe about how the Spirit indwells us and empowers us and transforms us into the likeness of Christ. Doctrine includes those things of what we believe about who we are as the church and things that are to come in the future. And what Paul says is that those things that God has revealed in his word, we're to take those and to understand them. They become our doctrine. They become our diet. They become um, the, the 
the core of the belief that we have about who God is and what He's doing related to what He has revealed and that we're to hold that closely. We're to press into it. We're to think about it. We're to be instructed by it. We're to hold it as, as, as precious and pure. It's that which is part of the renewing of our mind which leads to a transformation of our life. And Paul says, listen, you've got to guard that. It's this strong warning. You see, listen, I, I think it's this way. Um, the dividers, they're deceitful. And what Paul's point is that when a church is committed to biblical doctrine, they will very likely experience doctrinal threats. You know, there's the thing that sometimes you'll hear people say, and they'll say things like, well, you know, Jesus unites, but doctrine divides. And I would say that is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. Doctrine unites because it informs us about who Jesus is. Doctrine is the firm foundation by which we build our life. See, the absence of doctrine, the absence of doctrine, to, to have an attitude that says, well, I don't care about doctrine, I don't care about theology, I don't care about all those things. The absence of doctrine will always lead to idolatry. It'll always lead to self-worship. It'll always lead to a self-righteousness. It, it, is, it is defining who God is in your own way. It's you making God into your own image when you ignore or set aside doctrine, when you ignore or set aside what the Bible teaches, you ignore and you set aside the theology of who God is and what He's doing. You know, the other thing that He says here is that He is, um, their obedience is noteworthy and it is known and he commends them on it, but he also is telling them obedience is not enough. In verse 19, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You need to add wisdom and you need to add innocence. Because obedience, while it is great and it is commendable, obedience by itself is not enough. In fact, obedience by itself can be a vulnerability in your life apart from wisdom and apart from innocence. You know, I would say this, there are those that peddle legalism in the midst of the church. And legalism is simply those things that you must do so that you can garner God's attention. Those things that you must do to prove to God that you are worthy. Those things that you must do to demonstrate a righteousness above those that are around you. That's legalism. It is the denial that Christ has done it all. Obedience to Jesus and obedience to what God has commanded, that's not legalism. Legalism are all those things you do in your strength to make your name big. You know, those that peddle legalism in the church, 
are those that prey on the hearts of the fearful and they seek out the naive, that's what Paul says, and they lead them to spiritual ruin. You know, true biblical teaching, true biblical teaching that in that informs about doctrine, that informs about the nature and the attributes of God, that informs about man's condition and yet the hope of salvation and redemption. True biblical teaching doesn't lead you to believe that somehow you can get God's attention. True biblical teaching, rather, it, it helps you to see God more rightly and instead of capturing his attention, realizing that you, you are the one that in fact is captured by him. In fact, what happens is true biblical teaching leads you to worship. It doesn't lead you to pride. It doesn't lead you to complacency. It doesn't lead you to anxiety. True biblical teaching leads you to worship. Which brings me to the last part of what Paul says, the very ending of his letter. Look at what he says, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and uh, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, one of the things as Paul ends this, this letter, he doesn't end it on the Romans. He doesn't end the letter on himself. He ends the letter rightly focused on God. He ends the letter in doxology, in worship, to Him who is able. Not to us who are able, not to us who will try hard, not to us who will earn anything, but to Him who is able. You see, all that God does, all that God is doing, is to draw us in to the sacred and beautiful and satisfying place of doxology, to the, to the satisfying place of worship. You know, doxology's desire is to strengthen us. And the means of doxology, the means of worship is, is the gospel. It is the, it is the preaching of Jesus. It is the revelation of, of mystery. Mystery, that which is previously unknown, but now has been revealed. Um, it is part of what, what um, we see in the Bible as God's progressive revelation, as he, as he progressively reveals his unfolding drama of redemption and salvation for all mankind. You see, progressive revelation, I don't want you to think about these mysteries and these revealings. This is not a deviation or a detour of God's plan. God's not making this up as he's going. It's a disclosure of what God has decreed. It is, it is the making known of His divine and certain and sure will. John Stott comments here, he says, many people reject the gospel today 
not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. In no way does Paul see the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of what God has done by sending his eternal son into time and into history and into space to become a part of that which he created and then ultimately to take on all the sin and brokenness of that creation and, and die with it and die for it so that we might know the eternal life that God always intended for us. You know, there is going to be, as he talks about this obedience of faith, I want you to hear that obedience of faith is also and simply believing. What it is, is this obedience of faith, it is, it is restorative, it is corrective, it, is, it puts us back on the course in which we were always meant to be, and that happens by faith. It is a restoration of the original intent that we were designed for, worship. It's a, it's a peace and a healing and a making right. It's being brought back into alignment with how you were designed and what you were created for and who you were created for. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. One writer says it this way, the wonder of the gospel and the most freeing discovery that this sinner has ever made is that God's deepest commitment to be glorified and my deepest longing to be satisfied are not in conflict, but in fact they find simultaneous consummation in his display of and my delight in the glory of God. Paul ends this letter in the most fitting way, and that is with an amen. You know, on the night that Daniel Webster died, uh, Webster's uh, dictionary of, 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 of one thing that he's famous for, he was in uh, Marshfield. It's October the 24th, the year's 1852, and he has a, a great friend named Dr. Jeffries. And um, knowing of, of Webster's faith, he comes to, to Webster's bedside and says, Hey, listen, I want to read to you um, a favorite hymn. I want to be here in these moments to come for you. Webster was at a place of deep weakness and frailty and hadn't spoken words in weeks, confined to the bed and in the last moments of his life, his friend comes, sits at the bedside, and, and reads to him this hymn by William Cowper. The hymn was this, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And he read on until he gets to the final stanza, and, and you know it. It says, Then as a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. And then this man who was feeble and frail and in the weakest moment of his life draws his last breaths and cries out from his bed, Amen, Amen, Amen. 
This is in some ways the, the feeling, the expression, the passion that Paul ends this letter with. You know, with that, we come to the end of our study of Romans, a study that began way back in August um, when truly the world was different. In no way could any of us have envisioned where we would sit in this time and place in history today. And yet what we find is that Romans 16 has been here all along, and here we come right uh, stumbling into the end of Paul's letter, and it is no less relevant today than it was when we started. No believer should be without the regular study of God's Word. I would say it this way. Maybe even no believer should be without the regular reading, the regular thinking through, the regular meditating on Paul's letter to the Romans. I pray this will not be your last time in this beautiful and rich letter. Not your last time for a long time. I pray that you would find yourself introduced to this. I pray that this would become a new friend. I pray you would find yourself immersed more and more into the truths that Paul has spelled out. Martin Luther said that every believer should meditate upon this letter daily and should learn it word by word by heart. William Tyndale, the man who was the the pioneer of the English Bible translation, writes in his prologue in the, in the first English New Testament in 1534, he writes this, and I'll end this sermon and this series with these words. William Tyndale, 1534. For as much as this letter, meaning Romans, is the principle and the most excellent part of the New Testament, a, a most pure gospel, and it's also a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. I think that every Christian man and woman should know it, not only by heart, not only by rote, but you would exercise yourself in it ever more continually as with the daily bread for your soul. No man verily can read it too often or study it too well. The more it is studied, the easier it is. And the more it is searched, the more precious things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. Let me ask you, have you had the opportunity during this extraordinary time in your life to pursue um, to, to hunt for, uh, to search for the great treasures that God has revealed. Listen, if, 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 if you have not taken advantage of this time to press into God's Word, to, to press into what God has revealed, I want to implore you to do so. I want to beg you to find yourself... Um, establishing, um, uh, pressing into a regular time of reading God's Word. 
There is no firmer foundation you will find here on earth. There is no more beautiful treasure that you could spend your life seeking. And in the midst of that, you'll find a love that is greater than anything you could have imagined, kindling in you an affection you could never otherwise know. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that you would meet us where we are. That, Father, by your Spirit and through your Word, you would draw us into doxology. You would draw us into worship. Father, you would would grant us a glimpse of your glory. And, Father, in seeing that, we would hear the echoes of what you created us for. You would draw us into the design that you crafted for us. Father, you would make known to us your love and desire and affection. I pray that in the midst of uh, this time of isolation, that the affection in our relationships, the affection in our families, the affection for one another would be kindled and it would grow and it would find an outlet in all the ways that you've made possible today. Father, would you do what only you can do? Would you hide this word in our hearts? Would you renew our minds? Would you transform our lives? We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.